Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Down the Line. I'm Brevin Hunda alongside Kyle Bitts. It's Friday, April 8th, 2022. It's about 10.45 here on the West Coast, approaching 11 a.m. here. It's also, when you think about it, 2, 2 o'clock on the East Coast. I'm here with Kyle Betts. How are you doing, Kyle? Doing good. It's been an incredibly busy week. Moved into a new apartment. So got that all settled in by myself and then um, tested positive for COVID yesterday. So I'm pretty much cooped up here for the next five days or so. So uh, I, I guess it's at the right time because there are Masters going on right now. There's some baseball, yep. which we're going to talk about. Um, NBA is finishing up the regular season. So not only is it just busy in the world, but man, we got a lot going on just in the sports world too. Yeah, plenty of sports. As you mentioned, Kyle, we're going to talk some NFL, some projected wins. We're going to talk some NBA. We're going to talk some March Madness. We're going to recap the Final Four National Championship. We're going to talk MLB. It's opening day, Kyle. And when you think about opening day, what does it mean that we're finally here after a lockout and everything that's going on this offseason? Yeah, it's a little surreal. By the way, my voice sounds way off because we're really congested, <laughs> but um, it was a great opening day, I think, and it's been a long time coming, obviously with the lockout situation and opening day getting pushed back a week. Um, it's a moment we've been waiting for, and honestly, I wasn't really able to watch any of the games yesterday except for the Angels game. I watched that game in the entirety, um, followed the Padres game, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit coming up here too. But um, it, it's just great to have baseball back and to see everyone in the stands um, at full capacity. It, it's great. It's fantastic. And then also, I think, too, just um, having that outlet here. I mean, it's, this is, it's almost summertime, and baseball is the elite summertime sport. So it's good to have that back and just have the guys, you know, compete at the fullest level, at, at the highest level. And hopefully there aren't many injuries this year just – throughout the MLB because uh, we've already seen guys like DeGrom go down for a month and things of that sort. So we're just hoping for the best season possible. We saw some players make their major. We saw some top prospects make their major league debut yesterday from Bobby Witt Jr. for the Kansas City Royals, um, who got the go-ahead at RBI double yesterday in the 3-1 to victory over the Cleveland Guardians. Um, and you also had some veterans on display in St. Louis with Yadier Molina, uh, Adam Wainwright, and Albert Pujols uh, coming back together as teammates in a 9 nothing shutout victory as Adam Wainwright threw six shutout innings. All right, we're going to get to some MLB news. Um, and uh, one of the things that's new to Major League Baseball this season is umpires have a microphone to explain any replay reviews. So if there's a replay review following the call, the umpires will explain it. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I saw this for the first time yesterday during the Angels game. It was a fly ball to left field, went over the fence. It was just a couple of inches away from the foul pole, but Joe Madden decided to challenge that. It was unsuccessful, but it, it was interesting to actually hear the umpire um, detail the decision that was made. I think it's great. It grows the game. It makes it a little bit more fair. I think it provides a human aspect to that too, um, with the umpires actually 
you know, giving the call. And I, th I think it's great. And hopefully we get to see more of, you know, video technology be used within the MLB because we all want it to be fair. We all want the game to be competitive. And I think that's just another step in the right direction of making that more of a reality. I think, too, what it also does, you get to kind of see the continuity that goes behind these replay reviews. You know, we know it takes place in New York, but that's all we kind of know of. And so when yeah. you hear broadcasters, you hear whether it's TV or radio, you hear them try to dissect a certain call, uh, certain call that's made from New York. They don't really get any reasoning compared to we see when the NFL, like the NFL or the NBA, where they explain um, the certain call. And so for, for a while, fans, broadcasters, you know, people have kind of had to assume of why this call was made. Now we don't really have, now it's kind of transparent. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's great. And we'll, we'll see how this all plays out. I think it's great for the game. I don't think there's any negative mm -hmm. sort of connotation attached to it. And then also with the MLB, there's technology called pitch hom to relay signs between pitchers and catchers. I think, isn't that the, uh, they wear wristbands if they, yeah. if they so choose to do so. Okay. Cause my mom was telling me about that yesterday and I hadn't heard of it. I was like, okay, this, this sounds pretty interesting. Um, and then she was like, yeah, Otani is not wearing it. Cause I, I saw <laughs> the catcher Max Safi flashing signs at him all night. Apparently he didn't need it because he threw nine strikeouts in less than five innings. Mm -hmm. But um, that's another interesting aspect about the game in relation to technology and how it's growing. I think, you know, it is difficult, I've heard, for, you know, some pitchers to kind of read what catchers are showing them. Obviously, mm -hmm. you, you see catchers, you know, painting their fingernails and trying to help with that. But even then, you know, it, it's not always it's not always perfect. So I, I think it's great. And anything technology-based that doesn't compromise the integrity of the game, I, I think is, is a really good step forward. I think also what this does is, you know, one of the big topics surrounding the game has been pace of play. And what it also does is, you know, it increases that pace of play because in between as a batter's come as once a, uh, once a play is done, the catcher can easily relay the next sign to the pitcher for that first pitch. And then all the, the pitchers that are using pitch comp, they have this, um, it's kind of like an IFB where they can hear it um, through their hat um, of what pitch for that uh, first offering. So it kind of speeds up the game uh, in that okay. way as well. That's, that's really also, nice. We'll have to see, mm -hmm. I think, you know, how many pitchers actually utilize that. I mean, I, like I said, I only watched one game yesterday, but did, did you see any pitchers kind of use that? I know um, you Darvish was using that yesterday. Okay. Um, I was watching the Pottery game. He was using that um, in the Padres' final spring training game. Blake Snell was using that as well. Uh, okay. So it's all about adjusting and figuring that out and just f figuring that all out, a uh, new technology in terms mm -hmm. of relaying designs. Mm -hmm. Right. One more piece of news before we get into an injury news is MLB announced former pitcher CC Sabathia as an assistant 
to the commissioner on Wednesday. Sebastian will be a liaison between the league and current players working to grow the game and promote equity in the game of baseball. Kyle, when you heard this uh, on Wednesday, what was your reaction? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no better person for that position. I mean, everyone loves T.C. Sabathia. There's not one person in this world that hates him. And if you do, that's that's pretty interesting. I mean, this is a guy who has been around for a long time. He pitched at a high level. He seems like mm-hmm. a really um, just relatable human. And so for him to get this position, I think it's important because, um, I mean, that role is so vital, especially now, I think, after that lockout where there was so much tension between the owners and the commissioner and the players too. But um, I think it's really great for uh, that guy to be the ambassador, I guess, liaison in that position. And I, I think hopefully he's able to kind of be a direct pipeline between better communication between the players and the league. And I, I think, you know, no better person, like I said, for it, just because he's – been around for a long time, you know, he gave well and he seems like a really nice guy. So um, hopefully, I, I mean, no doubt he's going to excel in that role, but hopefully they're able to, um, you know, work some things out if they have any more issues here in the future. It's one of the steps that Commissioner Rod Manfred wanted to achieve following the uh, con- conclusion of the lockout was to build that connection between the owners himself and the players. So that is something uh, as a step in the right direction. CC Sabathia tweeted yesterday, I love this game and the opportunity to bring about real change, diversity, developing the youth and bring a voice for the players. This new position with the at MLB commissioner's office is another step in that direction. Let's get to work and tweet. Yeah. I think so you the, think about how, what he's, mm-hmm. The biggest part of that, I would say, is developing the youth. And, and youth baseball is so important. I think that, that that's something that MLB has really kind of struggled to key in on, especially in recent years. So hopefully he's able to kind of change that in, in a sense and bring more, mm-hmm. more awareness to the youth game and grow the youth game because that, that's where it all starts. Mm-hmm. He's part of the Players Alliance a uh, committee that has both current and former players uh, involved with that, working to grow the game to especially like underserved uh, communities as well. All right. Now we're going to move on to some injury news and we got some pitcher injuries already. And one of those is New York Mets pitcher Jacob DeGrom. He's being shut down for a month after dealing yet another stuff back with a shoulder injury. Yeah. I brought this up a little bit earlier but this has taken full effect now here within the Mets organization. And it's tough, man, because we saw how dominant, you know, Jacob DeGrom has been just throughout his career. So for him to undergo yet another setback, I mean, it it hurts because you really want to see this guy out there. He's, he's the best of the best. Um, his, His stuff is incredible. He's got heck of an arm, but that's just the main issue with him is getting healthy. And it feels like it always has, you know, when he's not pitching a full season. I mean, honestly, I, I can't remember the last time he did pitch a full season. So hopefully he's able to get back out there soon enough. I think that the Mets and the rotation is going to be able to hold it down to a certain extent without him because obviously they got Bassett now and Matt Scherzer, but 
you want your ace out there, obviously. So hopefully he, he comes back sooner than later. And the game is better when he's out there pitching. And he mm-hmm. is just absolutely electric. He is just sensational. Reminds me of me watching Shohei Otani. I mean, I, I watched that guy in awe. Just his arsenal, um, the way he delivers his pitches. Um, the Grom is kind of the same way. I don't watch him as often, obviously. But, I mean, he's able to, you know, really just take over a game. And when you don't have a guy out there that is able to do that, it's not as fun to watch. So, hopefully, he comes back soon. Mm-hmm. We think about what he did in half the season last year, going 7-2, and two, that 1.8 year A lot of people were comparing him to what Bob Gibson was able to do back in his best year back in 1968. So you think about, you know, what that level he can pitch to at a Hall of Fame caliber level, you know, it's even more so we want players like DeGrom, Fernando Tatis Jr., for example, as well to be healthy and uh, stay on the field. All right. We're going to move on to some transactions, and the first one involves just straight up one for one at two major league players, and that is uh, relief pitcher Craig Kimbrell going to LA to play for the Dodgers. In return, the White Sox get uh, another bat to bolster that lineup, and AJ Pollock and Kyle. What was your reaction to seeing this trade go down? Yeah, great deal for the Dodgers. Obviously, the White Sox didn't need two closers in their bullpen. So um, instead of Hendricks, Liam Hendricks, they decided to send Craig Kimbrell. And he's pretty much a direct replacement for Kenley Jansen, who I think went to Atlanta. And so now we have another stacked Dodgers team. I mean, this having this guy in your bullpen is, I mean, that, that is such a weapon. And we all know what he can do. He's an all-star caliber player. And he can shut down the game at any moment. I mean, similar to the Grom, just in a different way. But um, big deal for them, A.J. Pollock. I mean, it always seems like the Dodgers have plenty of depth, especially in the outfield, so I think they'll be fine. I think Gavin Lux is um, going to fill in there. But, um, yeah, I think this is a pretty fair deal on both sides. I think the White Sox address the need, and so do the Dodgers. So it's a player-for-player trade-up, uh, straight-up trade, I should say. And I think it's really good for both sides. Mm-hmm. AJ Pollock is currently uh, currently leading off uh, in this morning's game against the Detroit Tigers. He just um, he recorded a RBI single um, to right field, so already the production being made. And you think about that White Sox lineup already: Luis Roberts with there, you got Jose Abreu with the three spot, Eloy Jimenez. You know, and this is without even having Tim Anderson in that lineup, who can, as you mentioned in the past, can hit three thirty. Yeah, and that's the thing about the White Sox. It just seems like these past couple seasons, they've done so much to improve their roster. And A.J. Pollock, I think, you know, he's, he's a guy who's going to get everyday, you know, starts out there. And I think their outfield behind him is, is really good as well. Like, at least Robert, you already brought up, Eloy Jimenez, and then even guys like Gavin Sheets, who, who can fill in at any moment, or Adam Engel. So I think that's really important for them and forward is – you know, just adding to that depth. And I think, you know, the White Sox are a team to watch, like we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. Especially with their manager, longtime manager, Tony Larusa, 
at the helm. All right, we're going to stay in the AL Central because the Cleveland Guardians, they extended third baseman Jose Ramirez for a five-year, $124 million deal, according to sources on Wednesday. This is the first, I think, extension of a Guardians player past the 2023 season. Yeah, I did a um, story on this. Not a story, but I'm taking a data journalism class. And so I had to do a discussion involving numbers of some sort. And I I chose to do Jose Ramirez. And from that research, he's the 34th highest paid player now in the league. It's a big uh, signing extension for them. I think, you know, to have an all-star guy locked up for a long time is really important. And that team is getting better. Obviously, they got to a tough start yesterday, um, suffered their first loss. But I think that's a guy, in, in order to sustain long success, you need a guy like that to be sort of the cornerstone of your team. And so for him to be extended, for him to stick around there, I mean, he's 29 years old, so he's got a lot of years left in him. I think it's really important. And already seeing him produce yesterday, he had a – um, RBI double. I think that's another key factor of this is um, guys who can produce at a high level. And I think he brought in the only run yesterday for the Guardians. Too. So I think, you know, having a guy like that who can produce at the plate, he can make plays at third when he needs to. Um, 163 home runs in his career. It's, it's big for them. And I think that's a, that's a glue guy to have around. I think what's also big about Jose Ramirez is it's that you mentioned how good he is offensively, but he can run the bases. You know, you think about, you know, he's had at least 10 stolen bases um, every single year since 2014, and that includes the shortened 2020-60 game season, and that goes along with three All-Stars, including last year as well. Yeah, that, that is really interesting, too. And I, I think another intriguing part of this is that um, if this – you know, signing didn't happen. Um, there was a possibility he was going to be traded. Now, we don't know exactly what for, but apparently the Padres were involved in this. And I think in that case, I mean, what, what happens then, Brevin, is that he gets placed at third or maybe even first, and then Machado plays short, and then Tatis, when he comes back, he would just be placed at short, and Machado move back to third. I mean, I don't know. That, that would have been really interesting if the trade went down there um, and he ended up in San Diego. Yeah, that would have been interesting. He could have played left field. He's got major league experience, mm-hmm. although it's been five, six years since he's played the outfield. Okay. Uh, knowing left field has been kind of a question mark there. Um, but, yeah, it was kind of surprising to see that you know, it shows you how much the Padres want to win, and they're talking to anybody and everybody. Yeah, and speaking of the Padres, we had a trade involving Eric Hosmer, who um, has not had the best relationship uh, with his peers in San Diego. Um, there was a trade that was rumored to be happening between the Padres and the Mets, which involved Chris Paddock, which we'll also talk about in a couple minutes here. Emilio Pagan hit me as well, which is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And then it also would have involved um, Mets outfielder Dominic Smith. Um, apparently, they were a part of this deal as well. The Padres, 
like you mentioned, Reverend, they're seeking outfield depth. Um, Mets looking for more starting pitching with um, DeGrom and Max Scherzer, you know, dealing with the hamstring as well. Um, but that trade fell through. And when you heard about this potential deal, were you kind of, you know, looking back saying like, man, I wish this actually happened, or are you okay with it kind of just falling through? Because with Paddock and Pagan now going elsewhere, do you think you got more value out of that trade, or do you think that this trade could have been better and Osmo would have been shipped elsewhere? I think this, for to seeing this one, you know, it was just like, you know, for how good our bullpen's been in the past, you think about, you know, we think about closers like a Trevor Hoffman, a Goose Gossage, a Mark Davis in the organization in the past. We think about why would you trade it? Why would you trade a relief pitcher like Emilio Pagan? And then you yeah. think about the, the Chris Paddock side and you think about, okay, what does the other team need? And, you know, what would the other team want for what your team wants? And you think about that, Chris Paddock, it shows you that how how much depth the starting rotation has. Um, we're yeah. going to mention who the Padres just traded for in a sec, but you think about other than that, it's other resources, you could say, with you, Darvish, and Joe Musgrove, and Blake Snell. You have um, Mike Clevenger um, on the track to come back. And so you think about the depth, you think about, what we have in the minor leagues with Brian Weathers and Mackenzie Gore, who are on the cusp of coming back or coming to the major leagues. So you think about that depth the Padres have, it's, it's huge. And on the, on the flip side, you think about what the Padres wanted and outfielder Dominic Smith, guy that could play left field mostly every day and provide that, you know, you think about possibly it could work, but ultimately the trade didn't go down. Yeah, you're right. That trade did not go down. There was a trade involving Paddock and Pagan, which we will get to in just a few minutes. That's what I was referring to. Um, we'll get that to that in a couple minutes here, but um, we're going to stick with more Padres games because they definitely made the most noise, I guess, within the past week before opening day here and even opening day trade, um, which I just talked about. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But first, you mentioned the Padres added another starting pitcher to that rotation, and I think it's huge for them, especially after last season where they had issues there. Sean Manaya from the A's, he's a left-handed pitcher, and then the right-handed pitcher, Aaron Holiday, um, went to the Padres. The A's got right-handed pitcher Adrian Martinez, which uh, is the number 26 prospect um, from the Padres. And then infielder Uribiel Angeles, he is the number 12 prospect from San Diego. Um, Pretty big deal happening here, and you also see the A's trading away one of their star players yet again. We've seen that recurring thing throughout this offseason, and here we are at it again. So Manaya coming to the Padres. Um, he had his first ever 30-start season last year. He had a 3.91 ERA and a 4.73 strikeout-to-walk ratio. So, um, you know, he's still within – uh, the prime of his career, he's got a lot of years left, and I saw him plenty of times as an Angels fan. He's 30 years old, um, so he is looking to have a solid year um, this season. And, and it's pretty interesting because on Sunday during spring training, when the Padres were going to play the A's and this deal went down in the morning, 
Manaya ended up pitching for the Padres that day when he was scheduled to play. He was scheduled to pitch for the A's against the Padres. So that, that was pretty mm-hmm. interesting. Um, obviously, that was in place of Mike Clevenger, who is dealing with right knee pain for the Padres. But here you are with the Padres, really just adding more guys to the rotation and even more so a left-handed pitcher who can do it at a high level. Yeah, it's big. You think about what Sean Manaya brings. You think about, as I just mentioned, that starting rotation, you know, Darvish, um, at that point, Chris Paddock still, uh, Blake Snell, Joe Musgrove. You know, you really only had one left-handed pitcher unless you bring up a young lefty and Ryan Weathers. And, you know, adding adding a pitcher like Sean Manaya, who was under new Padres manager, first-year Padres manager of Bob Melvin in Oakland. It shows you that, you know, how much the Padres were even looking to, um, you know, add to that rotation still because the the biggest thing that you need and then the biggest depth piece that you need to any Major League Baseball roster, it's pitching, whether it, especially in the starting rotation. You look at some uh, of how good some of these other rotations have been in the past. You think about how good – um, those pitchers have been, and you see the Padres are trying to mold that right now, getting uh, Sean Manaya. Yeah, big deal there. Another deal involving the Padres was their backup catcher, Victor Caratini. He was shipped to the Brewers in Milwaukee for minor league catcher Brett Solvang, minor league outfielder Corey Howe, who is the Brewers' number 17 top prospect. Um, How's a versatile player? Play shortstop and play third base. So that's good for the Padres in that regard. But um, Milwaukee, you see them kind of taking initiative here and trading for Caratini, who he had a lot of big moments wearing a Padres uniform. There's no doubt about that. He was a, he was a part of just a lot of big games as well. But um, you see the Brewers going ahead trading for him because their catcher, Pedro Severino, was suspended 80 games violating the drug policy of the MLB and now the Padres have two catchers on the roster they had three going into the start of the season but here they go ahead and change that up make it two and by doing so they open up another roster spot um thoughts on this deal Brevin yeah ultimately it shows you you know another depth piece that the Padres had in this roster in terms of catching you know you had Jorge Alfaro who um, who did not have any minor league options. So it's either you keep him or you DFA him or designate him for assignment. And then you also had um, the Padres number three prospect, Luis Campusano, who obviously had options. And so the Padres go into opening day with Austin Nola and Jorge Alfaro, a couple of right-handed bats. You give up a switch hitting Victor Carantini to Milwaukee. And ultimately, what it did is opened up for another roster spot, whether that was another um, fielder for this team, whether it was for another arm in the bullpen, it just opened up another spot. Um, And it shows you that the depth that this Padres team has um, in terms of uh, the catching. Yeah, no doubt about that. So a big move happening there with Victor Caratini. And then here's the trade I was referring to earlier. Um, the last trade that they ended up making, I believe this was yesterday on opening day. So always good to see some opening day deals go down. But we had Emilio Pagan, as we mentioned, right-handed pitcher out of the bullpen. 
um, Chris Paddock, and then also a player to be named Leiter. They are going to Minnesota, joining the Twins for left-handed pitcher Taylor Rogers, outfitter Brent Rooker, and then also cash involved in that deal. And then here's a deal where you see Taylor Rogers really just adding to the back end of that bullpen with Robert Suarez and Drew Pomeranz once he comes back. And Rooker as well on, on his side, the outfielder, former top prospect. Um, he is reported to AAA El Paso for the Padres. And then pretty interesting as well, um, Taylor Rogers. He has a twin brother, Tyler Rogers. He's a submarine kind of style pitcher for San Francisco. So um, his brother ends up joining the NL West. And this is a pretty interesting deal because I feel like with the Mets, maybe the Padres could have got more out of that deal, but clearly they wanted to move away from Pagan and Chris Paddock, and here they were able to do so. Um, what, what do you expect out of Taylor Rogers adding to this bullpen, Brevin? I think it's big. It's the second, first off, it's the second left-handed reliever in the bullpen with uh, Tim Hill, but also, you know, it's another left-handed arm to the back end of that rotation, as we just mentioned. You know, it was an all-star last year for the Twins, um, and he was able to get it done, whether uh, Alex Colomay or Hansel Robles couldn't, or he set them up to get it done. And that was big for um, the Twins last year. And so being able to get an all-star um, to that bullpen's key for this Padres team. So do you think that Rogers kind of inserts himself now as the closer with your ball club, or is that still kind of between him and Suarez? Do you think we're going to see different guys kind of filling in that role, or how, how do you see he fits in the bullpen? I would say he would be primarily the closer. That's what uh, Padres manager Bob Melvin said yesterday. Um, although he didn't pitch yesterday because he threw a pretty good-sized bullpen on Wednesday. But um, I could see Taylor Rogers easily filling in at that closer, although having that righty-lefty combination at that back end, it makes sense to have both um, have them available for both, depending on rest and who's available to go. For sure. Okay, that makes sense. And so you see the Potters making a lot of moves this week see how it all plays out within the first week now of MLB season. Great to have baseball back. And we'll for sure be watching out for how these guys all perform this season. But let's move on now to the NCAA Final Four and National Championships, both men's and women's. I mean, we had a really good weekend last weekend of games. Um, Villanova, number two seed, coming out of the South, playing number one, Kansas. That was Pretty much, I think, what most people expected in that game in the first Final Four men's matchup. Kansas ended up winning that game by 16. And so they were in the national championship game. And then Duke, as well, the number two seed out of the West, took on number eight, North Carolina, out of the East. North Carolina ended up winning that game. And that was supposed the whole way through. Um, really good game, I guess, for the first time these two teams have ever faced each other in the March Madness tournament and let alone the final four but then heading into the national championship what a game that was too number one kansas taking on number eight north carolina kansas ended up winning that game by three they trailed by as much as 16 with two minutes left in the first half they were down by 15 and a half time but they were able to figure it out and get some stops on defense and 
just a sensational second half performance. They are second half team and they pretty much put together the largest comeback in NCAA tournament championship history. And it was 14 to two in favor of Kansas in point off turnovers in the second half. So you see how they were able to really just clamp down defensively there. And Brevin with all these games going down, um, is this kind of what you expected or were there any surprises with these games? I think for what we saw leading up to this final four, I didn't I didn't think we expected as much blue blood uh in this final four in the national championship with Villanova. You think about Jay Wright, think about Bill Self with Kansas. You mentioned um, you know, with Duke with Coach K in his final uh shot at a national championship. You got first year coach Hooper Davis taking over for Roy Williams this year. Um and you think about um, what this all led to. And you think about Kansas, you mentioned that deficit and then being able to come back and just go on. A, just, all they had to do, you know, we think about being down 16 is a lot, but when you think about it, when you try and simplify it, that's just two 8 runs. And that's what ultimately Kansas was able to do. Um, similarly, they went on a big 20 to 6 run that was key in them getting back, but it was all about finding a way to to get it done. We saw Villanova. Uh, they were down early. They tried to do it. They got to within six, I think it was, but they couldn't. And then you see Kansas uh, be able to overcome uh, the big deficit. Yeah, it was a great national championship game. I think who the player who had a big part in that was Remy Martin as well for Kansas. He just made clutch three after clutch three in that game. At least it's what it seemed like. And I think it was a big part of helping them come back as well. He's an ASC transfer, um, got his time to shine, and now he's, you know, sitting really nicely with a national championship to his name as well. So um, he was a big part of that comeback as well. And on the women's side, we had some good games as well. On Friday, April 1st, um, at the Target Center in Minneapolis, number one seeded South Carolina out of the Greensboro region, took on number one Louisville out of the Wichita region. South Carolina ended up winning that game pretty easily. It was 72 to 59. They pretty much had their way all throughout. And then the closer game out of the two final four matchups was number one Stanford out of Spokane. They played number two UConn out of Bridgeport, but UConn ended up winning that game 63 to 58. And then so in the national championship game, just two days later, we had UConn against South Carolina, um, pretty much just Paige Beckers against Aliyah Boston um, was the key matchup there. They're two star players. But again, we, we saw just total takeover from South Carolina. They were clearly the best team out of the women's side this year and um, just really complete altogether. They played really good defense. They shot at a high level, and they ended up winning the national championship 64-49. And I think anytime you're able to beat uh, Gene in a national championship or just at all, it's a pretty big deal. And we saw South Carolina pretty much do it with some sort of ease, I think it's safe to say. Yeah, even despite both teams uh, shooting under 25% from three. The key thing for South Carolina was the rebounding. They out-rebounded yeah. the Huskies 49-24, to 24, including 21-6 to 6 on the offensive bus. And that was key for 
uh, the Gamecocks in pulling off another national championship. That's right. So there you go. You have South Carolina and Kansas winning national championships. It could have been South Carolina and North Carolina, but um, that blown lead, um, it, it's probably going to hit North Carolina and for a long time. It's going to stay with them. But um, hopefully next season we get a really good tournament. I think the only thing for me I was disappointed with this year's tournament was we really didn't have a buzzer beater in the next tournament. Um, and we, there's always usually one. And we almost did have one in that Arizona game where he dunked mm-hmm. and it went in just late. But um, I was definitely disappointed about that. But it was a good uh, tournament on both ends for the men's and women's. And hopefully next season we get something similar. So with that, that's going to be it for this first half of Down the Line. We hope you tune in to our second half coming up. When we come back after this, we're going to talk some NBA. We're going to talk some NFL. We're going to do some trivia where I'm on the chopping block trying to figure out uh final subject of the NBA playoff. That's coming all up when we come back here on Down the Line. as well, mostly involving the Padres. Got a little bit into the Final Four and National Championships that happened earlier this week, but now we're going to transition here into some NBA, and the playoffs are just a few days away now. Playing tournament begins on April 12th. That's going to last until the 15th, and then the playoffs officially start on April 16th, next Saturday. And so we have a really exciting time now in basketball where anything can happen. Teams are fighting for those positions in the East and West. And a big part of what has happened recently is the misfortune of the Lakers. Their season is over, unfortunately, for me, being a Lakers fan. Um, eliminated from the playoff and the playing tournament on Tuesday. And now they are set to receive a lottery pick, which – I'm sure is going to be used as some sort of trade asset in the offseason, but just so disappointing. I, I can't even begin with words to describe 
how poor this team performed. And yes, there were injuries, but that's no excuse for the Lakers to end up in the position that, that they ended up in, just missing the play-in altogether. I think that it was safe to assume the Lakers were going to make a play-in in some way, um, you know, before the season ended. But now they are not in a position to do so, and it's tough because they're currently in 11th. The teams worse than them in the league right now are the Kings, Trailblazers, Thunder, and Rockets. So that says a lot about how just bad the team performed, even with the veterans on their team. You saw LeBron James talking the whole season about don't speak down on us until it's over. And now it's over. And I think a little bit more prematurely than he thought so or any of us did. I mean, Brevin, when you consider this Lakers season, I mean, what's one word that comes to mind um, when, when you think about the performance on the court? I think the one word ultimately described the season was I think they just played a little bit lazy, to be quite honest. And yeah. a lot of that, that has to do with, you know, having older players on this roster, you know, and knowing that their bodies aren't as where they were five, six, seven years ago. Um, you know, you think about if this team were to be assembled 2012, you imagine that with the Kobe Bryant, that that's a, that's easily an NBA championship team, but yeah. it's 2022 and it's not. And so, you know, having Anthony Davis, uh, having Dwight Howard, Russell Westbrook, you know, this is Russell Westbrook before he was triple, double Russell Westbrook back in 2012. Yeah. But, you know, you think about how good these players have. And I think it's just age was a big factor in terms of, you know, trying to stay healthy for, 82 games and that certainly turned to be um, the juggernaut for this team yeah I think when you sign three guys mid-season and they end up starting a bulk of your games in the second half of mm-hmm. your season you're going to run into some problems and they definitely did I think you're right you bring up a great point when you say lazy because even at times this season we saw LeBron just give up on plays um, not show the effort we're used to seeing and of course a lot of that's frustration but, I mean, you're LeBron James, and you carried Cleveland to a title just a few years ago. And if you can do that by yourself, I feel like you can do anything. And it's just wild to see him on the couch, not in the playoffs this season. And I, I think, of course, you're right. When you bring up the veterans, that just, you know, it, it didn't work out. Like Trevor Reza, he was already released. He, he's terrible. He's just – you don't want that guy in your team. And Carmelo Anthony, we, we've seen him make a lot of poor decisions lately. He, he's not the metal he used to be. He's a catch-and-shoot guy. He, he really just seems like he hates to dribble out the shot clock or anyway. He, if he gets an opportunity, he's going to take it. And that didn't work. The way that Russell Westwood plays is not going to work either because he wants to be the main um, distributor of the basketball. He wants to be the scorer. He wants to be the guy who has the ball on every play. And so does LeBron. And I think you can even argue so does Anthony Davis. So when you have just a group like that, it's just disappointing to not see them even make the play-in game. But I guess it could be worse. And here they are with a potential lottery pick. And we'll see what happens. I think they, they are already talking to teams like the Hornets, trying to trade Russell Westbrook away. He's still got a year left on his contract. And 
that's a problem if you're the Lakers. That is a massive problem because I don't think you want him back there next year. So we'll see what happens with that. But I think that's the biggest storyline right now in the NBA is the Lakers uh, being total failures. And it, it's awesome, though. I, I think at the same time in the West, because you have teams like the Suns, who are number one, which is pretty much expected. But then you have the Grizzlies, you know, just putting together a fantastic season, a lot of that without John Moran. Um, really nice position at second. And they're a really complete team, too, as well. I think um, in the East as well, we got the Heat with the one seed right now, Bucks and Celtics following them with the Sixers and Raptors. How about the Raptors as well? 47 and 33. They're a team that kind of went under the radar. We all expected the Bulls to perform better than them, but they're ahead of the Bulls. And so I think mm-hmm. it's been um, a really interesting NBA season because we all expected the Lakers to um, make the playoffs, but they didn't. We didn't expect the Grizzlies to be the number two seed, but they are. So I think mm-hmm. it just shows how unique the season has been. Mm-hmm. And you think about, you know, these potential matchups here in the playoffs, you could see, you know, we could have the Warriors take on the Denver Nuggets in that first round. You think about what Nicole Jokic has done and possibly having Steph Curry back for the playoffs is going to be huge for if that series were to come together. No doubt. All right. We're going to move on from the NBA to the NFL. It's currently the off season, but Caesar Sportsbook last week put out its 2022 projected wins and only one team in the AFC, we're starting the AFC, only one team in the AFC is average is projected to win more than 11 games. And that is from the AFC East in the Buffalo Bills, Kyle. And your reaction, to, what was your reaction to seeing um, this list come together? So when I see this list, it, it's so many teams are at nine and a half. And that is such a trap. I mean, that's what Vegas does, obviously. But all these teams are projected with nine and a half, ten, eight and a half wins. And so I'm just like, it just shows how stacked the AFC is this season. I mean, obviously there, there are those games where you play teams from another division. Like I think the Broncos are playing the NFC West this season, but I mean, this just goes to show you how close it could end up being, especially in the wild card race. I think that's going to be really important too. One that really stood out to me, was the Jets projected at eight and a half wins. I'm taking under <laughs> on that all day long. How are they at eight and a half wins? I don't know. They didn't do much to <laughs> they didn't do much to build their team. And Zach Wilson is the quarterback. So I if there's one team I'm taking here to go under, it's the Jets. Houston's at four and a half. That's a little tricky. Jacksonville, I yep. might take the under on that at six and a half. Um Pittsburgh is at seven and a half. So those teams are, they have the lowest uh, projected amounts. So who knows? But I, I think it's Jacksonville and Jets are the clear cut teams in which I would say under, but mm-hmm. man, I don't know. The, the rest with them being at like nine and a half and ten and a half wins, I don't know. I'm staying away from that. I, I can't trust that. <laughs> There's three teams I see you going over. Um, I mean, you mentioned Pittsburgh, Kyle. Yeah. Thinking about what Mike Tomlin's been able to do in Pittsburgh. 
yeah. whether he's had Big Ben or not. And, you know, what is this, what is this like, uh, how many straight years has he had at least 500 a record? Yeah, so, so at least. crazy record. So, yeah, I could definitely yeah. see them getting, at least, them getting at least eight. Or, I mean, uh-huh. technically it would be nine. But Yeah, eight, nine win. Mm-hmm. Second team is uh, probably the Patriots. You think about with them being at eight and a half, for them not, um, you know, they still got Mac Jones as a quarterback. We think about how good he was winning double-digit games at the helm. Yeah, I think eight and a half is a little bit low for the Patriots. Yeah, I could see that too. And you look at that NFC, it's a little mm-hmm. more, I guess, clear-cut. The Rams, Dallas Uh have 10 and a half. Niners have 10. Green Bay and Tampa Bay projected 11 and a half. Minnesota and Philadelphia projected eight and a half. New Orleans and Washington Uh projected at seven and a half. And then um, Arizona, two of nine, but everyone else um, is at six and a half, six or five and a half. So I, I don't know this NFC side. Looking at it, what stands out to me is I'd probably take the Rams over question mark. I can see that. I mm-hmm. think they could get to twelve wins. I think that's doable. Eleven or twelve. Um, in terms of too. a team mm-hmm. with an under, I would probably say I could definitely see the Giants or Detroit. The Giants yeah. are mm-hmm. projected seven wins. Detroit at six and a half. That's a lot for Detroit. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. To going back on your point about the NFC West, I think it's hard to see a division winner with just 10, 10, 10 wins. Yeah. And the Rams think, probably will mm-hmm. win too, but I mean, obviously the Niners are really good as well, but I don't know. I, I just think the Rams, yeah. I mean, coming off, mm-hmm. you know, the Super Bowl. And building their team too, I think there's high expectations. Mm-hmm. That that third team in the AFC West, I could see going over their their win total would probably be the Raiders at eight and a half. We saw them ten wins last year. They bring in, you know, Devontae Adams, all their defensive yeah. pieces. That could easily be an over eight and a half. Yeah, I could see that too for sure. Yeah, the NFC is a little iffy, I guess, when you consider some of these teams, but... More lopsided. Yeah, exactly, but that's what Vegas does. They want you to... They want you to believe. So, I, yeah. I don't know. It, it's... I could definitely see all these, like, being pretty close, but who knows? Yeah, they want to get the fans of New York. They want to... They want to have more money on the New York teams, the Jets and the Giants, at least seven wins each. <laughs> Uh, all right we are going to move on from the gridiron to the links the 86th masters is going on at augusta national 2022 high in demand with the return of tiger woods first official uh uh tournament since the 2020 masters um did compete in last year's pnc championship back in december with the sun charlie in the uh, PGA champ in a PGA champions tour event. Now he's back here on the PGA tour, looking to get his sixth green jacket. Yeah, I mean, right now he's tied at 16th. I think it's 
pretty safe to say he's going to make the cut barring mm-hmm. crazy disaster. But, um, okay, actually, maybe not. He just bogeyed again. He's bogeyed twice a day. He's at plus two on the day through three. Um, he's at plus one altogether from yesterday and today. Um, so just updated right now, he, he's tied at 26. So um, hopefully he is able to figure it out. Um, definitely want to see him go far. Um, but right now, I think it's uh, Danny Willett, um, the Englishman in the lead, um, tied with, um, who is it? Sung Jane. Yeah, there mm-hmm. you go. So he, he's, he's currently tied with him at um, four under. And um, we'll see what happens. This is going to be a really good competition, I think, these next two days. Um, looking forward to see what happens. We got Scotty Scheffler tied for six right now. So that's a name to look out for. Dustin Johnson also tied at six. Um, Matsuyama is tied for 16th, as well as Colin Morikawa. Um, so, yeah, I think that this is a tournament in which, I mean, obviously there's so much history attached with it, but um, it seems like we've had a few different winners in, in the past couple of years. So we'll, we'll see who's able to come through this year. Right now, um, Xander Shoffley is tied for 67, so he's on the cusp of not making the cut. Same with Bryson DeChambeau at plus five. So um, we'll see what happens with that. Today was a real ch- uh, today's a real challenging day with the winds picking up at Augusta. Um, pretty windy day. I'm pretty sure it was Kevin Nah. He said yesterday that I can't remember what adjective he said, but it was it was like pretty um, it was a pretty big score if you just shoot even par on the day for how windy the conditions are are going to be. Yeah, so this should be really interesting. To see how that will affect uh, these golfers heading forward. I think that it's really going to be important just to capitalize here on the second round, um, especially for a guy like Tiger Woods. Um, you don't want to slip away too quickly here. So um, hopefully he's able to figure it out. He's only through three, so he's got plenty of opportunity left here today. Um, but obviously him being one of the goats, we want to see him do well, especially coming back. So, I think with him actually participating in the Masters, it shows that he's just not competing to compete. He's competing with a purpose. He knows that he could win. And so I think that's what's going to be really important for him is just taking advantage of the shots, putting himself in the best position to win. Um, because he, he definitely can do it, and he showed us a couple of years ago. So many things are on the line with this six-string jacket he would tie. Jack Nicholas for most Masters victories. He would also, if he gets a win, it would be his 83rd PGA Tour win, passing Sam Snead for most PGA Tour wins. And also it would be his 16th major victory, which would give him two back of Jack Nicholas's record, 18 major wins. All right, let's move on here to trivia, our final Topic here of the day on down the line. Again, this is episode 43. Um, today, I'm going to be quizzing Brevin on um, the NBA playoffs. I didn't really know what to do for this at first, but then I was like, okay, we're talking about the play and stuff. So I was like, all right, let me kind of stick with this thing. There have been 
four teams in the past 10 plus years who were the one seed and went on to win the NBA championship. Now, two of these teams, two, or two of the winners are the same team, I should say. And the other, the other two are different. But, but two of the teams on this list are the same team. Um, and the other two are different. So I'll, I'll give you the years too, if that, if that helps you. I don't know. I don't know if I should, but it's, it's been. No, probably. No, no, no don't put, don't give the years. Okay. 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 So number, you said what number one seeds to win the NBA finals. Yes. In the past 10 years. So 2012 until now, there have been four one seeds to end up winning the NBA championship. Can you name the four teams? Again, two of those winners are the same team. I, I think you can pretty much Okay, well, hands down, first answer has got to be the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, I'm going to go with the Warriors. Yeah, so it was back in 2014-15 and then 2016-17. Uh-huh. Um they had records of 67 and 15 in the regular season to end up as the one seed out of the West. And in both of those seasons, they beat the Cavs in the championship. Obviously, in between that was the Seven. yeah, the 73 and 9 Warriors who ended up losing to the Cavs in the finals uh-huh. as well. So um, there you go. There, there's two down with the Warriors. And now you're looking for two more teams who are one seeds to, to win their championship from 2012 on. I think I would go with the Cavs that, that championship year that they had against the Warriors. Um, so let me see here. Um, I, technically, I think you're right. But I, but this list here is is the number one like overall seed. So team with the best. Oh, record. I, I probably, oh okay. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I thought that's all. I probably should have clarified that. I probably should have clarified that. I think technically you're okay. right. They they were um, a one seed, but okay. number one overall. So team with the best record. Yeah, that's all. We actually clarified that. But yeah, and you're saying the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Team, team with the best record was a one seed. And. All right. Yeah. So. You're looking for those teams. Um, let's see. Last year, the Bucks were the one seed, right? So the Bucks, um, yes. Oh, they. Were, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there you go. That's a, that's another one. Um, wait, this list. <laughs> This list only so technically you are right, but for some reason this list only goes to 2020. So I mean technically yes, you're right. I'm I'm in, I'm in shambles. I'm in shambles. I'm in shambles. But yes, technically you are right. You are right. Something, Kyle. All right. You are, yeah. And I'm not even the one taking the first Oh man. Uh, so, okay, so technically there's five. So there you go. You got you got two. Um. Oh gosh. Let's this, see. This did not work out as planned. <laughs> Since 2012. Since 2012, yeah. How about LeBron James in the uh, Miami Heat? Yeah, there you go. It was 2012-13. Uh, they beat the Spurs 43. It was like crazy championship. Um, yeah. Ray with, Allen uh, in the Ray corner. Allen, yeah. They were 66 and 16 in the regular season. Um, oh. Ended up being the Spurs. 
And then you're looking for one more year now. So there you go. Let's see. Um, let's see. I'm debating right now between the Spurs and the Raptors. I think ultimately, Kyle, Ginobili, Parker, Duncan, I'm going to go with the Spurs. Yeah, there you go. You got it. That was really yeah. good. That was really good on your end. Um, 62 and 20 record during the 2013-14 season placed them as the one seed, and mm-hmm. they ended up beating the Heat four to one in that finals. It was when they had Kawhi as well. Um, mm-hmm. Weird to think it was that long ago, but it was almost <laughs> ten years ago. Uh, so there you go. Mm-hmm. So that was really good. I, I figure I knew NBA champions because um, I was like, all right, well, the Warriors, they've won it for a three out of five. They've been in five yeah. straight. I'm like, well, it's the only championship that's on in June outside of the Stanley Cup. So I was like, eh, right. there's a good opportunity here. Yeah, you mentioned the Raptors for a second. They ended up beating mm-hmm. the Bucks, And the Bucks actually were the number one seed that yeah. year mm-hmm. in 2018-19. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the Raptors were the two seed. It was really close. Because mm-hmm. I knew 2018, the Raptors were the one seed in the West. Because that was the year that the Warriors were faced with going on the road the first time. Oh, yeah. So, so they're like, well, go. it's not the Raptors. Uh-huh. So, nice. That was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Even though my, my list is uh, <laughs> not a very good list. NBA.com uh, but um, yeah, there you go. We'll make sure to add them on Twitter, Kyle. When we put out our, uh, when we post this on uh, yeah, Twitter. At so, NBA Fixer, fix uh-huh. number one seed list. Get someone to update this list. <laughs> For real. But yeah, that, that was that was pretty good. I don't know if I would have got it. Um, that that was actually, uh, I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> all right well that's gonna do it for us here on it down the line this week we talked some we just talked about the masters we talked some nba playoff history over the last decade we talked nfl victories projected wins for 2022 we finished up talking about march madness with the conclusion of the final four in the national championships for the men's and women's basketball tournaments in division one we also talked some baseball with the padres making their trades in their with all of their trade rumors as well as some big news as we hit as we hit opening day it's opening weekend a lot of teams will continue to have their home openers as players are Introduce players, coaches, managers, clubhouse people, everyone that is involved with an MLB organization being uh, introduced um, at their home opener. So that's going to do it for us here on Down the Line. We thank you for tuning in. Give us a follow. Um, be ready for and we hope you tune in next week to Down the Line. <laughs>